Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, Kyle Shanahan officially loses faith. He predicts the team will not go 23-0, which includes all the preseason games and the regular season and the playoffs into the Super Bowl, because we're really just projecting Jimmy Garoppolo, Kyle Shanahan, not on board. You'll have to excuse him. He's mourning. <laughs> He's mourning the loss of Kirk Cousins. Uh, David and my Wonderlick Wonder score officially leaked. And if you're curious what it is, it's equal to the square root of negative one. Math joke. And finally, the Rams are indeed all in. And David, I want your one-sentence reaction to what the Rams have done. Because, of course, they've now traded for Brandon Cooks. They don't have a draft pick, like, basically ever. And, <laughs> and yeah, they are staring at 2018 smack dab in the face. So give me your one-sentence reaction. Uh, what up, 2018? I mean, that's basically... Uh, it's going to be fun. Like, it's going to be super fun, man. Um, regard- even if it doesn't work out, like, I feel like it's still going to be super entertaining um, just to see how all of these different pieces come together. But, yeah, man, on, on paper, um, they're looking pretty good for this year. Yeah, I think ultimately it's going to be... I think I tweeted this out last week, but the football fan in me wants them to just completely boat race the entire NFL and just <laughs> light everything up and just everyone's going to be marveling at how Sean McVay played Madden on rookie mode and ended up winning a Super Bowl. Of course, the Niner fan in me wants it all to implode so hard. I mean, I want it to be like black hole singularity inside of that implosion kind of just massive black hole of suckage. That is what I want. Man, that's strong. Um, I'm I'm super looking forward to like the 49ers Rams games. Like I think those could be potentially some of the most fun games that we have this season. I mean, uh, we got... I mean, it was even it was a fun game last year on the Thursday night with Brian Hoyer. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, you throw Garoppolo in there and what they were able to do offensively and what you, you know, kind of project that they're going to be able to do offensively this season. And those matchups are going to be just a ton of fun to watch. Yeah. Well, we've replaced the Seahawks with the Rams uh, and we'll see how it goes. We've got a lot to get to this episode because this is indeed the premium position episode of our draft preview series. And this is where the magic happens, folks. This is where we're going to have a lot of fun. Last week, I think we covered, what, three players? This week, we're going to cover six players. So we have got to get to it. But quick, a reminder of what it is that we're looking for over the course of this episode and over the course of really the series of the players that we're looking to identify for the 49ers to draft this year. Number one, we're looking for an athletic profile. Number two, we're looking for production. Number three, we're looking at their traits. So we're doing some film watching and we're looking specifically at where this player wins as well as their limitations. And lastly, we're looking at positional value. And I I don't know that we've explicitly stated our positions of value. I think we've kind of made reference to them over the course of the last three or four weeks. But David, what are the positions that we think are more valuable in today's NFL and thus merit consideration when talking about draft picks? Well, I think obviously it starts at quarterback. Everybody knows that that's going to be number one. But then after that, you're looking at, uh, I think, in some order. um, And and I think the order can be debated a little bit. For me, it would go defensive back. Um, Cornerback specifically would be kind of the the premium one there. Edge rusher, then your offensive tackles, then wide receiver. So it's all positions that that are pass first positions, essentially. You want guys to be able to cover. You want guys that can get after the quarterback. You want guys that can protect the quarterback and then you need guys that the quarterback can throw the ball to. Right. So a a big pass game influence there. Those are the premium positions. Those are the guys that get paid the most money too. again. We talked about kind of why we think that value is where it's at um, a couple episodes back. But 
you see this in, in how teams opt to spend their resources. I think the most clearest example of this is the Jacksonville defense. We think that is the model for the modern NFL defense. They were very, very good at stopping the pass. They were not great at stopping the run. But at the end of the day, it really didn't matter because they got very, very far on the strength of that defense playing today's modern game, which was stop the pass. And, you know, I guess you kind of need to stop the run sometimes. Every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not the most important thing. Then you get to the non-premium positions. And that doesn't mean that these positions are not valuable, but these are just the positions that are farther away from the passing game. Read fullback. Sorry, use check. <laughs> uh, but the, le- the farther away from the passing game you are, the less valuable you become. And that's not to say these positions have no value. It's just that their value relative to other positions is diminished. And this is important because it all goes into the the rubric for which we're going to kind of pick these players. And ultimately, it's going to give us a clear winner at the, the ninth pick overall and then also help inform the players that we should pick a little bit later on day two and day three. So let's get let's jump right into this preview because we've got a lot of players to cover. As, as usual, let's talk about what we're not going to cover. Well, number one, quarterback, because we're good. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Uh, wide receiver there's no consensus top option in this class and no one that really makes sense taking at this at that point in the draft there's not while you may be in love with a wide receiver like maybe say Cortland Sutton he's not going to go ninth overall and if he does I would worry offensive tackle it wouldn't be unusual for Shanahan to look at a left tackle high but based on the quality of the class uh, I don't think this is necessarily the year for it we talked I think a couple weeks ago about where the draft had some strengths and it wasn't necessarily at the top of, of the draft outside of maybe Quentin Nelson, of course. And you also have a couple of good tackles currently. It's, it's not an immediate need, right? So you're, you're looking into the future a little bit, and it wouldn't be like of the offensive positions there. If they took a tackle, that would be the least surprising one to me, right? Of any of those three positions. Um, just because, again, Joe Staley, you know that he's not going to be around for too much longer. Trent Brown uh, is contracts expiring. So if you decide that you don't want to give him a big contract extension, like it wouldn't be too surprising to see them kind of look to that need a year in the future and decide to take a tackle if they fell in love with, I don't know, Connor Williams or something like that. But it just seems like an unlikely scenario. All right, so let's get right into it. David is officially drinking again. He's back on the wagon (laughs) after a a hiatus post-bachelor party where he may have almost died. Uh, I've got my can't confirm. Yeah, can definitely confirm. Uh, I've got my Oban fourteen. I'm drinking some uh, some whiskey tonight. So let's let's do it, man. Let's start with our overall player or the overall position that we're going to start with here, and that's going to be the defensive backs. And the defensive backs are going to get kicked off with none other than one Mister Minka Fitzpatrick. So as a reminder, we're going to talk about athletic profile, production, where he wins, limitations, and then the ultimate question about the player. So David. What is Minka's athletic profile? So I think he is is one of those like good but not great athletes, right? He's not somebody that's just kind of like jumping off the tape and, and wowing you with his athleticism. He didn't go and, you know, tear up the combine or anything like that. But he's certainly not a bad athlete. Like he's an above average NFL athlete for that position. Um, he's got, I think, really good straight line speed, right? You didn't see a lot of guys kind of run away from him down the field. Um, I think his short area quickness is really good, which, as we're going to get into, I think is important for the position that he's likely going to be playing in the NFL. Um, But you just don't see he's not a very explosive player, right? He's not uh, like his jump numbers weren't that great. And he's not again, he just doesn't have those moments where he kind of jumps out at you uh, on the tape. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Jump (laughs) joke. And and so I think that's where he's at. Again, we talk about um, 
athleticism in some ways kind of checking a box and then in other ways also kind of defining your ceiling. Um, and I think he doesn't have that those elite athletic traits, but he's plenty, plenty good enough, especially with what he shows on film to come in uh, and be a good player. What is it with players this year not running a full battery of tests so that we can get their composite score? It seems yeah, like there's it, a lot of them, especially like, the the defensive players at the top that we're like, yeah, because Minka doesn't have enough complete testing to put together a spark score. So we can't measure kind of where he's at overall. Um, the tests that we do have don't put him super duper high in the class. But when you look at his tape and we're going to talk about that in a minute, it's 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 fine. He clears enough of a bar that athleticism is not something that you're going to worry about, I think, with Minka. But the, the athletic profile is not going to jump off of the screen. Now, when it comes to production, we've got a three year starter who graded really well all three seasons. His 85.6 overall grade in 2017 was 27th among cornerbacks, and that includes a top 10 grade in run, de- in run defense and pass rush. His best overall grade came in 2016, when he was the sixth highest graded cornerback at 88.4, and that 2016 season was where he was more of a playmaker. He recorded 14 total plays on the ball, six picks, and eight pass breakups, compared to just three in 2017 on the exact same number of targets so overall this is a player that has produced and he's produced at at, at a big school he's not produced at you know a place where you're going to worry about the level of competition that he's facing this is ohio state they play big games and 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 he's you know or not Ohio. also alabama also alabama pretty good i'm already ahead of myself i'm thinking (laughs) uh but he played at alabama and this of course is a, a team that plays in a lot of very very high profile games yeah the guys that he's playing against you know when he's at bama there are guys that uh for the most part are gonna also be playing on sundays right get to go against a lot of nfl talent there which really helps uh you know kind of i guess bring some legitimacy to that sort of production right did you see the tweet where i think they took like the alabama defense from two years ago and they showed where every single starter on that defense was drafted. Oh, and, yeah, Gordon. Yeah. yeah, Gordon McGinnis tweeted that. Um, yeah, and it's like you basically have 11 NFL players that were drafted in like the top 150 picks or whatever on that damn defense. It's absurd, man. Um, yeah, so they, they've had a ton of talent there, and, and Minka's been one of their best players, right? Um, he's been, again, uh, a big part of that defense for three years in a row. He's done a lot of different things in that secondary. He's played pretty much everywhere at, at one point or another. You know, uh, not a ton of time in outside corner, but he did play... Uh, I think he had like one full game there in, in 2015 spot snaps here and there after that. Um, so he's kind of done a lot of different stuff in that Alabama defense, which I think that sort of versatility is something that teams are are looking for more and more in their defensive backs. So this is a player that when you look at where he wins, he wins with mental processing. Alabama's defense is not an easy defense. It's one of the probably the more complex defenses in college football. It's probably more complex than some NFL schemes, to be honest with you. But you've got a lot of assignments that you're responsible for. And Minka often does not miss them. He's consistently in the right spot. He diagnoses plays quickly. And he's aggressive in getting them involved in the play after he diagnoses what's happening. So this is a guy who's used to running an NFL caliber defense. He runs it very, very well. And he's consistently where he needs to be. And one of the things, so you see a lot of pattern match in Alabama's defense, and I think that shows up with his ability to really play underneath zones very well. So I think from a a coverage standpoint, his best spot is definitely in the slot, right, where he can, um, you know, be able to, from those underneath zones, diagnose what route route concepts that he's seen. He knows when, okay, if this uh, player that's right in front of me does one thing, I know that I should expect a route coming behind me, you know, different things like that, where he understands what the offense is trying to do, because a lot of what you have to do in that defense is 
you have to recognize those route concepts because as those change, that changes your assignment, right? You're not doing one predetermined thing before the snap. So I think players that come from schemes that are kind of a little bit more heavy in that tend to be a little bit better and more practiced at identifying what the offense is trying to do. And I think that's something that that absolutely shows up on his tape because he's uh, very good at kind of anticipating things and, and being in the right spot when he's in those underneath zone defenses. So when you think about the other area that he wins, it's going to be in run defense. He's not afraid at all to get involved in the run game down in the box. He's consistently aggressive in taking on blocks, filling holes in the box, and setting an edge as the force defender. Uh, there were a couple times where we were watching his tape, and it's like, yeah, that's that's exactly what you need to do. He he is appropriately aggressive, as we were talking about uh, before the show, <laughs> where he his aggression really does show up on tape, especially when you compare him to other players in this class. He's he's the kind of aggressive that you want to see from a defender on screen because he is sound in his assignment. He plays with aggression and he's able to make consistent plays. And it's part of the reason that Alabama's defense was so damn good. Definitely. And and I think if you flip the other side, right? OK, what are some limitations? Because, you know, I think some people have kind of started. He was really, really high early on in the draft process. A lot of people were very high on him. I know there was like a point where it was like, oh, man, it seemed absurd that he was going to get past the Browns second pick at number four, right? Well, he was considered at times to be the best defender in the draft full stop. Yeah. Um, and, and so now I think as we're, we've gotten, gotten further in the process, you know, he's started to kind of slide down boards for whatever reason. Um, the only thing that I really took a lot of issue with in his game is he wasn't quite as good in man coverage, right? Um, so you don't see as much of that ability to where I'm going to go take this, you know, slot receiver that they have. That's, it's a big playmaker for them and just take him out of the game, right? He's not that sort of a racer in the middle of the field. Um, Part of it, I think, is because you don't see a ton of snaps where he's asked to do that, right? Again, because of the type of scheme Alabama runs, they're not playing a ton of true man-to-man coverage, so you don't get to see those sort of techniques from him all that often. Um, It's not that I think he's a bad man-cover-like player. I, I think that he would be okay there. We just... It's it's more of an unknown than I think the other parts of his game right now. And I'm not totally comfortable saying that, yeah, he's going to come in and be able to handle some of those, uh, you know, slot assignments in a man coverage heavy scheme. So we get to the question with Minka then. And, and you talked a lot about his positional versatility. He played everywhere in Alabama's defense. The rap on, on Minka was that he doesn't necessarily have a fixed position. He could play safety. He could play slot corner. Maybe he plays outside corner. So... Does Minka Fitzpatrick's lack of kind of positional clarity or his positional versatility, depending on whether your glass is half full or half empty, does it concern you when you're drafting a player potentially at, you know, in a, in a top 10 slot? It doesn't. I think um, we, we kind of alluded does to or this. Doesn't? Does not. Um, does not concern me. Uh, I think, uh, what was it, two episodes ago, we kind of touched on a little bit this idea of how you need to really start grouping defensive players on the back end. And, and it's less, okay, is he... An outside corner, is he a slot corner? Is he a safety? Is he a dime linebacker? Like, is he one of these specific things? You know, he doesn't have to be one of those. I think it's better to look at it through the sphere as, is he an outside player or an inside player, right? And I think he's very clearly an inside player. And when you have those guys, yeah, they can do a variety of different things. And you're seeing, again, more and more players that can can come in. And yeah, if you need him to on a snap and it allows you to kind of disguise things a little bit better, maybe he starts in the slot and he ends up playing as a deep safety. You know, he can come in and blitz off the edge. And, uh, you know, you mentioned when we were doing the production part, uh, this, I think he had the second highest graded uh, pass rush grade among cornerbacks. Uh, and we all know that Robert Sala loves those defensive back blitzes. 
So he's got so, he's got a really good feel for the blitz. Um, so I think that versatility is something, you know, you look at what offenses are trying to do, and we don't have to look very far. Look at what Shanahan is trying to do right now with the 49ers, and it's all about creating those mismatches in the middle of the field, right? That's really where he wants to attack. Uh, and defenses don't have a lot of guys that are great cover players in that area of the field. You know, linebackers aren't great in coverage unless you're like one of the handful of elite guys. Um, you, you don't have a ton of like dominant slot cornerbacks. So I think players that have his skill set uh, are, are kind of an undervalued commodity right now. That the NFL needs more of. So let's move to Derwin James. He's the other player in this category, this kind of safety middle of the field or, you know, not outside guy, but inside guy that is potentially an option at number nine at a position of value. When we get to Derwin James athletic profile, and here's a guy who is indeed a freaky athlete. Again, don't have a spark score for him because he didn't do any of the change of direction drills at the combine, but he tested incredibly well in every other drill. And that that flexibility, that explosion, that athleticism, it definitely shows up on tape. He is much more explosive than someone like Megan Fitzpatrick. When he decides to unload on a player, when that player is coming across the middle, he absolutely unloads and lays the wood. It's it's kind of scary. It's hilarious. You look at his mock draftable web and it's just a giant circle like <laughs> There, there, there are no points. It's just a circle. Like he's just on the outer edge of everything. You remember that play? Uh, the play that we watched when we were watching his film, and they, it was he ended up covering the corner of the end zone, and the quarterback threw it up, and he just jumped. Oh up. yeah, like in a hail mary situation. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And he just jumped up ridiculously high. And if it wasn't for his, and he was probably head and shoulders above the wide receiver, uh, and he was able to knock the ball away at the last minute. And it's just like, yeah, that's that's a vertical. That's what that is. <laughs> Uh, you see it all over his game, right? Uh, that, that athleticism shows up and I think it is important. And I think that does again, help kind of define and and in this case, elevate his ceiling a little bit for what you think he might be able to do on the field from a production standpoint. It's just as good. So 2016 didn't have, didn't have a ton of snaps, only played a hundred snaps that year because of a knee injury. Um, but was a full-time player from day one at Florida state, uh, both in his freshman year in 2015. And then of course, last season in 2017, had elite grades during both of those two full seasons. So he was the highest graded safety in the nation both of those seasons, uh, 91.2 grade in 2015, uh, 92.2 last season, um, top 25 coverage grades in both of those years. Basically, like there, there hasn't been a safety really since PFF has kind of been uh, charting college football over the last four seasons now that is really brought the production to the table that you're getting from Derwin James. So he's a freaky athlete. He's had elite production and where he wins is, well, he excels in man coverage. He played a good amount of man coverage at Florida state and was able to effectively cover slot wide receivers and tight ends. David would say that he is an eraser when it comes to tight ends, which is a theme I think we'll come back to when it comes to Derwin James. I think often he allowed a catch rate of just 46.2% over his college career to go along with a 57.3 passer rating allowed. That's, as the kids would say, dope. (laughs) (laughs) He's got good ball skills. He uses his length well to compress passing lanes and get his hands on the ball. He had 10 total plays in the ball in 2017. His eight pass defenses were tied for the most among safeties. Uh, And I think probably the most surprising, but also, I guess, surprising but kind of awesome part is that he's ridiculously good at rushing the passer in one-on-one situations. Dude, there are some legit pass rush skills there. Like, it's, it's a little bit different. So so Minka 
again, also did very well from a pass pass rush standpoint, but it was it was different, right? So he has a good feel. As a blitzer, it's a lot more about timing and taking good angles and you know knowing how to kind of you know when to come in and and timing, I guess, is a really big part of of all of that. And a lot of times you're coming in unblocked if you set things up right and you're able to kind of just use speed to close on the quarterback at that point. Um, whereas Derwin has moments and has has a lot of snaps actually where he's just asked to rush off the edge one on one like he was a normal edge rusher. He lined up uh, a lot on the edge. It was it was yeah. pretty common where we're watching the film and it's like where's Derwin? Oh, oh yeah, that's right. He's on the edge. And I mean, there's like obviously he's a defensive back. Nobody's comparing him to like one of the edge guys that we're about to talk about. That that level of refinement just isn't there, and nor would you expect it to be. But the flashes are there. Like th- there are some flashes of the ability to bend and, and turn a corner and kind of, again, that we know about the athleticism, the ability to close and get to the quarterback and really finish and in, in affect throws, right? Whether that's getting sacks or whether that's, uh, you know, there's a number of plays where he was able to just kind of like get his hand on the arm of the quarterback during the throwing motion and kind of break up plays. So there's stuff there that you could definitely work with um, to, to have him really be a plus for your defense in that area. So where is he limited? Well, he's not as good as an underneath defender in zone coverage. He can get preoccupied with underneath routes and lose receivers behind him. He's better when he can see the play unfolding in front of him and come downhill. And he's also not a spectacular run defender in the box. Now, it doesn't mean that he's awful here. He had a top 20 run defense grade both of the full seasons that he played. But he's much better in the open field or playing in the alley than he is in the box like a linebacker. So don't think of him as kind of like your your dollar backer or this kind of position the Niners tried to play Eric Reed in, even though he is much better in the box. I wouldn't say that Derwin James is someone that you're going to play at free safety. That's not his role. That's not his yeah. place. He is going to be an inside defensive back. But as long as he can see the play develop in front of him and run downhill and attack, that's where he really excels. When he starts getting caught up in zones and having people come behind him and in front of him, that's where he kind of loses it a bit. And so I wouldn't. I wouldn't put him in those situations if I wanted to maximize his athleticism and his talent. Yeah, he's not going to be competing for a job with, you know, Adrian Colbert and Jimmy Ward at free safety, yeah. right? He could maybe get away like he I think would be good uh if you think of like a Vic Fangio defense, right? A too high yeah. kind of like quarters based defense um where you're you're you don't you're not playing with as much depth, you're kind of still a little closer to the box like that style scheme would be fine. And then, of course, in, in what the 49ers are doing right now, he's going to fit in more that strong safety Cam Chancellor type role, which is going to allow him to stay close to the line of scrimmage. Um, but also still in, on most snaps, he's not going to be right there directly in the box like a linebacker. He's going to be playing kind of more in that alley space. I think the one thing that surprised me the most about about him, about Derwin James, was his reluctance to take on big dudes when they were coming at him in the run game. It was snap after snap of him trying to go around or trying to get not get away like run away, but just try to not take a block head on in the run game. And it's surprising for dude his size and with his degree of athleticism to to kind of try and skirt blocks and not take them on in the run game. And then that contributes to him just not being like a a wow you kind of run defender, especially when he's down in the box, which is interesting considering that's where he played a lot of the time. Um, So that that's probably what I would say is is his limitation and contextually that limitation still does not impact his overall grade that much. He's still fantastic at what he does. So yes, we're nitpicking a bit here, but that's why you're listening to us. <laughs> Definitely. And I, and I think, yeah, ultimately what it comes down to with him, the main question, right, is are the 49ers willing to take 
another safety, right? Which I think a lot of people would feel like is uh, a little bit redundant compared to what they have. You know, a lot of people see safety as one of the, would probably with interior uh, defensive linemen as kind of some of the strongest positions on the roster right now, right? People feel very good about Adrian Colbert. Obviously, we've been pretty high on Jimmy Ward. Um, you have Jaquaski Tart, who has been very good when he's seen time. Apparently, you um, can resign Eric Reed for peanuts. Right, yeah. Nobody wants Eric Reed. Um, so they have options there, right? And, and nobody would say that that's sort of a dire need. But I think in this particular case, the argument that you would make for Derwin James is you don't pass up a potential superstar at that position for one of the because you have the players in the roster that you do right there's there's a chance that he is significantly better than those players and I think the one thing which you kind of mentioned uh, a, a little bit earlier that I think really would allow him to kind of play in tandem with those guys is he is so good in man coverage and the ability to match up with guys uh, at tight end with some of the talented guys that you have, like he gives you a hope if you come across Rob Gronkowski, right? He has the, the tools uh, physically and also the skill set to be able to potentially match up and lesser tight ends. He can flat remove them from the game. Uh, and so I think that the ability to do that isn't something that you should just outright dismiss because you have Jaquaski tart on your roster. My favorite play that we watched on a film of his was one where he slow played the quarterback into thinking a player was open and and if he's got the play evolving in front of him and he knows where the running back is leaking out and it was either running back or wide receiver coming out from the slot and he slow plays it makes the quarterback think the guy's open and then as soon as the quarterback winds up to throw the ball he just breaks on that wide receiver and completely flattens him and and that to me is is Derwin James in a nutshell and it was awesome it was great and it's exactly what you would want on your defense for this interior defensive back if you're looking at the way that defenses are um, attacking the middle of the field nowadays. Um, and I mean, I think it was uh, Eric and George from PFF. They did that article talking about the value of a slot defender, right? The value of an yeah. interior defender and offenses are taking advantage of the interior of defenses. And so now I think the reaction is, well, you got to get stronger on the inside and Derwin James lie to do just that. Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, the ability that he has in man coverage, especially is, is special for that position. And I think, has the ability to to really change your defense and, and give you that top end interior pass defender that can match up with a lot of these guys that offenses are going to now to, to create offense. All right, so let's stay on the defensive back train. Let's go to Denzel Ward. Denzel Ward, cornerback out of Ohio State. This time, he actually is from Ohio State, <laughs> not <laughs> Got from him. somewhere else. Got him, that's right. Uh, so his athletic profile, he is an elite athlete. He does have a spark score. He's in the 97th what, what? percentile. The highest among cornerbacks in this draft class is a very, very similar athletic profile to none other than Marshawn Lattimore, best rookie corner drafted last year, completely turned around the Saints defense, and he's just a little smaller. He's about one inch and 10 pounds lighter than Marshawn Lattimore and played in a very, very similar system. That's not to say that those players are going to be, you know, it's not, it's not going to say that 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 predicts success for uh, Denzel Ward. But when you're looking at whether or not Ward is too small or whether or not he fits, well, absolutely he does because, you know, we already have proof that someone of his physical makeup can succeed in the NFL. From a production standpoint, it's kind of the same story, similar story to what we've seen from these Ohio State cornerbacks coming out, which is they really only have kind of one year, right? They they kind of have been churning through these guys pretty quickly he has, you know, two years where he had significant playing time, but only really one season this past year with top end production. 
Um, that top end production was was very very good. Had a ninety one point one overall grade. Uh, that was the second best among cornerbacks last year. That coverage grade, uh, which is of course the most important part of that for cornerbacks, also ranked second. Um, and has just put up some some incredible coverage numbers during his time at Ohio State. Has been targeted a hundred times over his his full college career allowed only 35% of those to be caught, um, which is just kind of an absurd number. Usually your top guys at the NFL level, um, you have a couple of them that are below 50. Richard Sherman has kind of been typically one of the better guys in this area. His career catch Current percentage, 49er, Richard Sherman. Right. Career catch percentage allowed is something in the neighborhood like 48%, if I remember right. Um, so 35% is just kind of an absurd number. Uh, also had a good number of plays on the ball, had 21 total plays on the ball in his career, 14 last year, uh, two interceptions, 12 passes defensed, only a 54.0 passer rating allowed into his coverage. So uh, very, very good coverage numbers in the, you know, albeit limited sample that we've seen of him at Ohio State. So where does Denzel Ward win when we watch the tape? Well, he's excellent in man coverage. Ohio State plays a lot of man coverage from press bail. He's able to keep his feet square at the line of scrimmage, uses offhand jam to widen the wide receiver to the sideline on vertical routes, and is physical enough to play through the wide receiver and contest on slant routes. So this is the kind of press man coverage that you want, especially in the 49ers scheme where you're going to have that cornerback, that outside corner, on the or closer to the wide receiver and closer to the line of scrimmage. Ward is very comfortable playing from trail technique. He can match receivers on, on underneath routes, and he is rarely in a position where he's not able to at least challenge the catch. And ultimately, he's very, very good at eliminating the deep ball. He allowed only two receptions on 14 passes, traveling 20 or more yards in the air, and he has the speed to stick with anyone down the field. So if James and Fitzpatrick were inside defensive backs, then Denzel Ward is probably more than likely an outside defensive back and one that could very much succeed in a cover three scheme where he is asked to play the deep ball very, very well if that number one receiver takes a vertical route. Definitely. You don't want to get in that mindset of like, oh, he's under six foot, throw him in the slot, right? This is a guy that played on the outside, uh, that is best on the outside and, and really handles the routes well because of how he sets things up at the line of scrimmage. You know, the types of things that you really need to be able to take away in this scheme, you know, we talk about the deep ball a lot. That's kind of the first thing. You, you can't be uh, a player on the outside that just gives up that go route uh, over and over again, or this defense is is broken. So you have to stop that, which he's great at. But then by by playing press and kind of forcing outside releases, you have a limited number of routes then that you know that you have to defend against. It's it's things like the comeback. It's things like the fade, the back shoulder throw, um, maybe a quick stop route. All these kind of short or all these like outbreaking routes, right? There's a, there's a finite number of them. He plays all of those very well, is still able to challenge the in-breaking route so he can get to the slant and, and make a play there. Um that's really, I mean, if you can handle like those basically like four routes pretty well, you can do very well in this scheme. And so I think this is a situation where kind of like we talked about with Malcolm Butler to a degree where Malcolm Butler didn't fit kind of the athletic profile that this scheme is known for, right? The tall, long corners. Um, he was a little bit more of an undersized guy, but he could still accomplish those same things. And that was a reason that we were high on him. I think Denzel Ward is kind of uh, is similar in that regard where you're not really going to him as being the prototypical guy for a cornerback in this scheme. But I think what you ask your corners to do in the scheme, he can do very well. So when we think, when we think about limitations for Denzel Ward, he's going to need to learn how to turn and find the ball a little better. 
Ohio State is a team that teaches their cornerbacks to not turn and look for the ball. So this is a coaching point, and it's something that he may have to adjust to in the NFL if indeed that's how the defensive back coach wants wants him to play that deep ball. So it's something that is not going to be super difficult to do. Well, I don't know if it's going to be difficult or not to do, but it's something to note because it's not something that he's had to do in college often. So it's something yeah. you're going to have to project. Normally in the NFL, you're you're looking for corners that are in phase. Uh, like most coaches are going to say, okay, if you're in phase, turn and find the ball, right? That means you're right there with the receiver. You need to become a receiver and go and make a play on that ball. Phase is basically like arm's length. Yeah, if you're out of phase, so if you're trail and, and kind of trying to catch up, you don't want to turn and find the ball because that's going to slow you down and then you're going to give up even more separation and stick big your plays, hands right? up face guard. Yeah. Play so the you got to kind of play that. You call it play the pocket, right? Where if you think of a receiver catching the pass over his shoulder, that area there in his arms that you're expecting that ball to land, that's what you got to play. And that's kind of how Ohio State teaches it when they're playing man coverage, which is uh, a lot of the time is they're going to get in trail. Don't turn back and find the ball. Play the receiver. Now, there's also a little bit of uncertainty with zone coverage. He so, he showed solid zone instincts, but you just don't get to see it from him very often. And, and that's because of the type of defense that Ohio State plays. And so you don't see him do that very often. You have to project that skill, and it's a bit more of an unknown. Um, and now the Niners do play a fair bit of man coverage. So this is probably where I would say that's actually kind of a benefit because the Niners are going to probably, if they were to draft him, play him in more of that press man coverage, or at least I hope they would, and not try to turn him into his own defender. Uh, and that's what he's proven that he can do well at the NFL level. So the question for Denzel Ward really is one about is one about positional trait fit. He's under six foot, and the 49ers have showed a kind of a, a propensity to really go after these taller corners. So David, is Denzel Ward too small for the 49ers to seriously consider as an outside cornerback? So I think... If you would have asked me right before all the Jimmy Ward stuff and, and what his position was maybe going to be this offseason, I would have said, yeah, like even though. So, again, that point about us talking with Malcolm Butler and now with Ward about, yeah, he doesn't fit the, the exact height, weight, arm length sort of thing, um, but he can do those same things, right? He can still uh, do those things on film, Um the 49ers going after, you know, obviously they ended up with Sherman, but the guys that they were rumored to go after before them were all the taller, longer players. So it was kind of going toward a, a scenario where it's like, all right, I think they're a little bit more rigid in what they want out of this particular position than maybe we w- think can actually fit in that scheme. And so it, maybe it's time to adjust and, and say, we just got to start eliminating these smaller cornerbacks. Um, but then all of a sudden you you say that you're going to give Jimmy Ward a shot on the outside. And, and so now I'm like, okay, maybe they are, more open to it for the right player, you know? And I think you do have to be willing to kind of make some of those uh, exceptions here and there, I think. Uh, otherwise, you're going to miss on some potentially very good players. But I don't know. I think whether they are interested in, in if they, depending on if they draft another cornerback this year, the traits that he brings to the table, I think is going to give us a little bit more clarity. But uh, I don't know. I think it's a tough situation right now. I'm not, I don't have a good feel for what they want in that position. I think they're probably a bit more flexible than, than others give them credit for. I mean, you have to remember, they also brought in Vontae Davis for a free agent visit and Vontae Davis is 5'10", 5'11". Yeah. So, and I don't think they were going to play Vontae Davis in the slot. So I think the team is probably a little bit more flexible than, than that kind of traditional over six foot, you know, 30, whatever inch arms. I think they're probably smarter about it and watching the tape and say can you do the things we ask the corners in our system to do um and i think there's probably some threshold in there i think five nine is probably it you're not going to put a five nine guy out there on the on the the boundary but i, I still uh I, I don't think that 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 
is going to be a bunch of a difference, especially because he's similarly along when you think of arm length as Josh Jackson, which is the next guy that we're going to talk about. When, when you look at how they're built athletically, they're not too different. And I would say, and Denzel Ward's actually a better athlete. So Josh Jackson, his athletic profile, he's a good athlete, 76 percentile in spark, was sixth among cornerbacks in this class. He's taller than Ward, so he's over six foot, but he actually has slightly shorter arms than Ward, and his wingspan is shorter as well. So even though he's taller, his wingspan is not as big, uh, and so ultimately they kind of even out when it comes to the the physical traits that you would want for the uh, the Seattle cover three defense. And and you look at production, and he's another player that really has one year, you know, one big year. Um, played over 900 snaps this past season, but was under 200 snaps in each of his first two. Um, it is worth noting that he came to Iowa as a receiver. Like that's what he played in high school and then was converted once he got on campus, essentially. So he's only been playing cornerback for a few years. And, and I think that could certainly be part of the equation there as to why he didn't play a lot early on. And then suddenly, you know, uh, it finally kind of found his groove a little bit and was able to play here. But that one season that he had in 2017 was uh, just incredible. Um, had the highest grade that PFF has given to a cornerback in four years of grading uh, at 96.8. Also the highest coverage grade given to a cornerback. So uh, he was able to produce at an incredibly high level in that one year that he got an opportunity to. So where does Josh Jackson win? He wins in off-zone coverage. Iowa has a zone-heavy scheme, and he looked far more comfortable in off-coverage than when doing just about anything else. He plays vertical routes exceptionally well, he allowed just two completions on 16 deep targets, and he shows good anticipation to drive on routes that are in front of him. He's also got very, very good ball skills. He picked off eight passes, broke up 17, and contested several others. 17, like, broken up passes plus eight interceptions is just ridiculous. Yeah, I know the the passes defense were, like, tied for most among cornerbacks last yeah. year. I'm not sure, like, t- that 25 total plays in the ball it had to be, if not first, very, very close. Yeah, he tracks the ball very, very well. He challenges at the highest point. I mean, this is basically his wide receiver skills on display. Definitely. And, and so, I mean, he was good enough to be recruited as a wide receiver, and then he was converted to corner, and that definitely shows up on tape. He made a number of plays on deep post routes, just jumping up and over the wide receiver to swap the ball away. He does a fantastic job of playing the ball, even when the wide receiver has a step on him and has secured the ball. So when you're looking at a corner with ball skills, this is definitely it. Yeah, he's, uh, again, that wide receiver influence that you mentioned, I think, was uh, was pretty clear because he's super comfortable, like, turning around, finding the ball, going up, and, and kind of looking to make a play on it at the highest point, right? You see him kind of jumping over guys to be able to get there first and, and get it at that high point, um, you know, catches the ball well when he has an opportunity to get interceptions. He gets interceptions most of the time, um, so not a ton of drops in that regard. I think, yeah, he he's a guy that... And, and part of this is because the scheme they played. I also think a little bit of it is just his skill set right now. So like looking at limitations, he's not as good in press when he's up near the line of scrimmage has to change direction quickly. Um, just doesn't look as comfortable and, and he'll kind of lose receivers on those short and intermediate routes that have some like really hard breaks, right? If they're, they're really changing direction quickly, he'll kind of struggle to keep up if he can't out physical them and kind of disrupt their break, right. To kind of slow them down there. Um, and he's not as comfortable with his back to the ball, right? Denzel Ward, his overall plays in the ball were lower, but he's kind of it's, part of that is a coaching thing, right? Because he's pretty much always playing with his back to the ball and having to react the last second. Whereas um, Jackson, if he did get in trail, 
just didn't look as comfortable there, wasn't really able to make as many plays. Um, so much more comfortable playing off, being able to see things happen in front of him, and then go up and get the ball just like a receiver. So the question for Josh Jackson then is, do you do you stack a cornerback in a very similar in a very similar mold to Sherman with Sherman already on the roster? This is a cornerback that played wide receiver, much like Sherman did, converted a cornerback, fits the mold, and and while they have very different similar they have very different styles of play, this is now a position that you've got Akella Witherspoon, you've got Richard Sherman. If he is truly an outside cornerback, and this question kind of goes for Denzel as well, then is this another another position where you're like, yeah, yeah, I mean, you could draft one, but why would you when you've got other positions of need? Um, as far as like, so a general position thing, I would have no issue taking another cornerback. You you, you can't have enough good cornerbacks um, on your roster. And, and especially with somebody like Sherman, it's like, yeah, he's he was really good last year when he was on the field, but there is uncertainty there, right? That's why the contract is what it is in some regard is it's like, hey, we don't totally trust you coming off this Achilles injury and, and turning 30 like there is some risk there. And you don't know, maybe it's only good for one year. You know, maybe maybe he has one more good year in him, and then year two, you really start to see that slide. You don't want to pass on a player. If you're, if you're really high on one of these cornerbacks and you think that they fit what you do and can come in and be a very good player, you don't pass on them because of the guys that you have there right now. You add them, knowing that that's probably going to be a need anyway a year from now, maybe at worst two years from now. I mean, unless you're the Rams because you don't have any picks. Right, uh, right. So, all right. So let's do like a mini a mini tourney of sorts right now before we get to the the Chubs and the Landrys of the world. So w- we've talked about defensive backs. We've talked about interior defensive backs and outside defensive backs. So give me who you think is better, who you would draft at nine between, uh, between Minka Fitzpatrick and between Mr. Peace Park himself, Derwin James. This one's tough. Uh, I would give a slight edge to Derwin for me, I, just because I think his high end play can be can be better, and I think um, you know he has the ability to be just a true difference maker on the back end and in, in what he does from a matchup standpoint. This one's this one's really difficult for me too because we we were talking about it before the show, and and I think Derwin has uh, and David said this. So I'm taking the words out of his mouth, but I wholeheartedly agree. Derwin has a higher ceiling, but Minka has a higher floor. Meaning that you all, Minka's a more polished player. He is appropriately aggressive. He is always in the right spot. You know what you're getting with him. And while he may be close to or near his ceiling, and that ceiling is very good, I think you, you can make the argument that Derwin James is just as good, but he still has room to grow to be even better. And so I think at, at nine, for me, that, that, upside that potential is something I'm probably going to draft for. Yeah. And it's very different than, you know, this is something we talked about with the linebackers, right? Tremaine Edmonds and Roquan Smith. And it's not a situation where with Edmonds, his production was very up and down, right? He's still that, that same guy that, you know, freak athlete has super high upside, but with him, he hasn't really put it together yet. Like Derwin's put a lot of stuff together. Again, yeah. he was the highest graded safety uh, in the nation, 2015 and 2017. So the production has been there and there's still room for growth. Like you still see things that he can polish up. So he, yeah, I think, I think the potential is there for him to be just a very special player for your defense. All right. So if he's the, if he's the interior defensive back, who's the outside defensive back that you take between Ward and Josh Jackson? So I kind of have a feeling that they're not going to be super interested in either. But if it were me picking one of them, I would go with Ward. I think even though Jackson is a guy that, you know, is, again, a little bit taller there, I don't think he fits what they do from a scheme standpoint as much. And and personally, I would, you know, if you're getting one of those guys and you're going to say, OK, we're going to adapt things a little bit to what they do well, 
with Ward, that's going to be play more man coverage, which is something that Seattle did over time and they were very effective with. I like that route a lot better than saying, okay, we're going to be a little bit more passive, play more off coverage because we got Jackson in there. I just don't like that strategy from a, from an overall defense perspective as much. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that Jackson is going to be super high on their list. I would be surprised if they took him. Yeah. And, and for me, I think I, I agree as well. I think Denzel Ward, when I watch what he does and what the Niners ask their players to do, I think he fits what the Niners do in their defense much better. Uh, and, and I like his style of play. I think he's going to be a very, very good corner. And, and so I would take Denzel Ward as well. So now we've got battle of the DBs. You've got Denzel Ward versus Derwin James. If those two players are on the board, irrespective of the edge players that we're going to get to here in a minute, which one of those two do you take? Man, that's hard. Um, I'm going to go with Derwin um, just because I think that they could stand to upgrade kind of the interior coverage a little bit more than they can the outside. I mean, this is when when you start getting into like really good players and, and players that check a lot of the boxes that you're looking for and you start looking for sort of tiebreakers, right? That's where I think need can kind of start to come into play and, and where it makes sense to factor that in. And I think while some people would look and say, oh, yeah, we're good at safety, nobody really like tarts okay in in one-on-one coverage situations like he's certainly not bad there but they don't really have anybody that can do the things that derwin can do from a man coverage standpoint on the inside of your defense so i think he's a bigger difference maker for this particular team i think for me when i when i look at the future of of what football is and what it's going to be i think of having to go up against the rams i think of having to go up against teams that are going to attack the middle of the field if we do end up successfully navigating the playoffs and making it to a place where we have to face Tom Brady and the damn New England Patriots, you're going to have to go against the Gronkowski's, the Gronkowski's of the world. And so I think that's where I probably lean. Uh, you know, I lean Derwin James a little bit as well. And, and it's mostly just because I think that that's going to give you, it's going to give you value at a place where you know you're going to have to stop the Todd Gurley's of the world. And, and I think that he can do just that. It, it wouldn't, I would be just as fine with Denzel Ward. I think he's a really, really yeah. good player. And and I think Ohio State produces great cornerbacks. I know Texas has the the DBU Monkier. I know that sometimes Moniker. I think it's Moniker, not Monkier. I always fuck that word up. Uh, but but Ohio State produces some really really good talent. So I wouldn't be mad at it. But I think I would probably take Derwin James as well. Yeah, it's it's close though. But yeah, I think he's just a, a again a difference maker there. All right, so let's get to the edge players. Let's get to first Bradley Chubb and then Harold Landry. So Bradley Chubb, his athletic profile. He's a good athlete. His P-Spark score puts him in the 70th percentile for NFL edge players. In a perfect world, when you look at like a, a position-specific drill like three-cone, Chubbs was 7.37. You want a sub-seven-second three-cone. When you look at the players that had a sub-seven-second three-cone, you look at the elite edge rushes. You're looking at the uh, J.J. Watts. You're looking at the Von Millers. That's where you want your edge player to be in that three-cone. And you know it doesn't disqualify, I'm sure, but it's just something to note because I think that that... that that not lack of athleticism, but that that three cone time, I think it shows up on tape. Definitely the the ability to bend, uh, you know, especially when looking at an edge guy that you're hoping is going to be a speed guy is is an important thing. Um, from a production standpoint with him, we do get back to more of a guy with a sustained track record of of high level play, right? So three years starter at NC State. Um, improved his overall grade in each of those three seasons, finally landed at 89.7 last year, which was the sixth highest grade among edge defenders. Um, He's been incredibly good in the run defense game. So top 15 grades each of the last two years, sixth best this past season, had an 11.0 run stop rate 
um, which is the second highest one in this draft class right now. Um, And then he did increase his pressure total, right? Uh, Getting after the quarterback, increased it every single season, topped out at 56 total pressures in 2017. So it was an area of his game that he improved throughout his three seasons there. All right, so where does Bradley Chubb win? Well, he wins more with power than speed as a pass rusher. He's got really good burst off the ball, but he wins most often to the inside, and he's not going to bend around the edge or go around the corner, which you know his kind of slower three-cone time would indicate. He's got a pretty good initial move to the inside, uses a rip to get hands off of him, and his ability to use his hands well is something that's probably going to translate well to the NFL. He's got refined hand usage, and he's got more refined hand usage than you would typically see out of edge rushers coming into the NFL. He's disruptive in the run game. He's very, very difficult to move, consistently wins a leverage battle, and puts himself in a position to make plays near or behind the line of scrimmage. So from a limitation standpoint, um, it's it's getting back to that, that kind of three-cone thing and what that alludes to, right, which is the ability to bend around the corner as an edge rusher. And there are times, so it's not a situation like he has some good explosiveness. The the burst off the ball is really good, and, and he'll cover a good amount of ground in those first few steps, and you see a lot of snaps where he gets to the shoulder. So those edge rushers, the guys that are trying to win with speed, right, they want to get to the outside shoulder of that tackle and get their shoulder on it because at that point, the tackle can't get their hands on them, and it's you want to dip right around, bend the corner, flatten out to the quarterback, right? So if you get to the shoulder... You've won that rep, essentially. But there are a lot of times where he's to that point and then can't bend, right? He either takes too long, his angle's too wide, and so he he ends up running past the quarterback because he can't flatten soon enough. There'll be plays where he falls down because he just doesn't have the flexibility to be able to corner that way. I've done that. Um, I've, I've done that where I'm playing flag football, and I, I think I'm way more athletic than I am. And I try and make a cut, and my feet are no longer under me. You're just and like, I'm just, nope. I am sideways. It, it's not like a, I mean, this is why it's a rare thing to find in players. And players who do that really well get paid a shit ton of money yeah. in the NFL to go well, they quarterbacks. Can, uh, they can skim, it's almost like skimming the water, right? Where you like, you've bend and you can like lay your hand yeah. on the ocean and not fall it, over. I mean, it looks like, uh, it looks like those pictures that you'll see like in magazines or something like that about it with a motorcycle, right? The corners. Yes. Where they're like barely off the ground. Where they have to wear those stupid knee pads because their knee is literally rubbing on the ground at like 90 miles an hour. Yeah, that's what good like speed ed- edge rushers do is, yeah. is essentially that, but against a tackle. There's a Ducati and, analogy here that I'm going to find. I'm going <laughs> to find the Ducati analogy. Um, so you just don't see that with, with Chubb. You know, again, he's a very good player, produced at a high level. Um, there's a lot to like about his game, but he doesn't bring that kind of top-end pass rushing ability that I think would be something that the 49ers would would really need to consider drafting him there. So as I was watching his tape, two words kept jumping into my head. Solomon Thomas. Is Bradley Chubb too similar to Solomon Thomas to really consider at the nine spot if you're drafting? Again, the whole context of this is what would we do if we were the Niners GM? Is he too much like Solomon Thomas? Is he truly redundant, unlike some of the other players that we've discussed? I think so. I think his game's really similar. I, I think he's he's Solomon Thomas that actually just played on the edge more in college, right? Like Solomon Thomas played in that 3-4 scheme um, at, at Stanford there, and so he spent more time in between the tackles. Chubb, a little bit more time outside the tackle, but his game is similar. He's an excellent run defender. Like he will be very disruptive in that phase of the game, and he won't be terrible as a pass rusher. Like he's going to be able to contribute there He's just not going to be like your high producing edge guy 
um, that this team really needs right now. And so I think, yeah, there, there is like uh, some issue because he's a bigger player, right? He's they're They're both around like that 270 mark, which is, I guess, a little bit more traditional 4-3 um, defensive end, whereas really what they're looking for in this defense is in that weak side rusher is a little bit of a lighter, undersized guy that, that is really focused on just getting after the quarterback. Two bonus questions. One, why is it okay to be redundant at outside corner and not okay or less okay to be redundant at something like the Solomon Thomas edge rusher, big end slash Leo four three. I mean, you got to draw a line at some point, you know, like I think right now um, with Buckner, you have Buckner Armstead and Thomas that are all high picks. that are all good players. I think that at doing those specific things. And I think taking another player at this stage, like just wouldn't make, I don't think that it moves the needle as much. Whereas you're going to find a way to get that other cornerback on the field, right? Like that's going to be a little bit easier to do with where they're at right now. Um, I I just don't know how it works from an interior perspective right now for them. The redundancy at defensive line is magnified by the fact that you've, that this would be the third year in a row that you're taking a similar profile player. Fourth. Yeah. Fourth Jesus. Whereas with cornerback, you're not you're not seeing that problem. You really have two players and then a lot of you hope. And so I think that's probably what makes it more okay at corner and, and less okay with this position. Yeah, and I think it, it it's part of like you, you need to have a good enough prospect there, right? If they had if there was somebody coming out that like was Aaron Donald, right? That here, then yeah, you at that point you kind of ignore the need because he's a true like special superstar at that position and you just make it work. But I don't think that Chubb is that guy. And to a certain degree, I think defensive line can be a little bit like wide receiver where it's the collection of skill set of players and what they do well that can really make a defensive line take off. And if you have, you know, a up speed to power guy, a straight power guy, and then maybe a pure speed guy, you can move those pieces around to great effect much like wide receivers where you've got your slot guy, you've got your speed guy, you've got your reception, your, you know, your Pierre Garcons or your possession guys. And it's not necessarily one guy that does it all. I mean, if you have that one guy, great, but if you can put them together that you can also, you can also then achieve similar things. And that then gets us to Harold Landry because Harold Landry is yes, a defensive lineman, but a defensive lineman that is not in the same mold as someone like a Bradley Chubb or really anyone else that we have on the roster. So Harold Landry, his athletic profile Literally, my one bullet point here is that boy's good. <laughs> like his, his, he's an athlete, man, and it shows yeah. up on tape. And, and he's in the 87th percentile uh, in Spark. He's the second highest uh, edge player in the draft class, which is great. We talked about three cone for Bradley Chubb. His was 7.37 or something like that. Well, you think of Harold Landry. He's got that sub seven second three cone at 6.88 seconds at over 250 pounds. That puts him, at some, that puts him with some elite company. Other players drafted in the first round who weighed over 250 pounds and ran a sub 6.93 cone. DeMarcus Ware, J.J. Watt, David Pollock, Melvin Ingram, Joey Bosa, T.J. Watt. There's only one name in there that some people won't recognize, and that's probably David Pollock. But other than that, everyone else is like, yeah, those guys are pretty good. And and this is the thing is this is where athleticism really comes into play. It's like you are just more athletic than the tackles you're going up against. You can get to that outside shoulder and then you have the athleticism to bend around the edge. You get to the quarterback. That's what you want out of a pass rusher. And Harold Landry does it over and over and over again. (laughs) 
Um, and so from a production standpoint with him, it's a little bit more varied. And I think that's something we'll talk about kind of at the end uh, of his section here. But three years as a full-time player, grades of 83.0 or higher in all three of those years. Um, his peak season was two years ago in 2016, had an 89.0 overall grade, which which was the seventh highest among edge defenders that season, um, recorded a quarterback pressure on 21% of his pass rush snaps, which is just kind of it's mind-boggling. It's absolutely um, mind-boggling. So for for some context there, usually your top NFL players, like anything over 10% is very good. Um, your, your top, top guys will typically be kind of in the 12 to 15% range on, on any given year. So 21% is, is an incredibly high number. Um, that was 69 pressures, including 18 sacks within that on just 322 pass rush snaps. So uh, just producing at an incredibly high level. Things took a step back, um, you know, in 2017, didn't produce uh, at the same level. Overall grade dipped a little bit to 86.3, and that pressure rate dipped to 12%. Um, only had 27 pressures and 218 pass rush snaps. So I think one thing to note when it comes to production at the college level from a pass rushing standpoint is I, I love the the articles that Eric and George have been putting out on Pro Football Focus about how college production correlates to NFL production. Because I think that it's it's important to say, hey, does what they do in college actually translate to what they do in the NFL from a stati- at a statistically significant level? And what they found was that on a per-rush basis, how a player performs as a pass rusher per snap in college actually correlates quite well with how they produce in, in the NFL. And when you think about how someone like Harold Landry produces as a pass rusher, you think of that pressure rate at 21% of his pass snaps, that that's an absurd rate. That's, I think that's going to translate to the NFL and the, the it's nothing's a guarantee in the draft, nothing. But if you're dealing in probabilities, I'd rather deal in a probability that has over the last four years shown us a, a statistically significant correlation to, to NFL production. Like yeah. that's what I'm going to go for. Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, so PFF is really just kind of getting started at looking at this college stuff and being able to determine, okay, how do the grades and, and the, the stuff that we're keeping track of there translate to the NFL level. And so far, this is maybe the most promising thing is what they do as a pass rusher, their pass rush grades correlates very highly, especially for NFL stats. Like NFL stats, generally, NFL is, is a very random uh, environment with the, that 16-game sample, right? So to have something that correlates that highly is very encouraging. And that's, I think, a very good sign for somebody like Harold Landry that did produce very well in that system. Because when you think about where he wins, he wins as a true speed rusher. His burst off the line of scrimmage is ridiculous. He's not only the first player off the ball oftentimes, but he covers a ridiculous amount of ground in his first three steps, which makes life incredibly difficult for tackles. There was one game where this poor tackle just didn't even get into a pass set. He just started backpedaling. (laughs) Yeah, the Wake Forest game. He just started like running backwards to try to to cut off Harold Landry. He honestly looked like, do you remember how Mike Martz used to teach his quarterbacks to drop back with that ridiculous straight drop back where they couldn't cross their legs? It was just like this weird backpedal that would like make Nick Saban cringe because he doesn't even teach his DBs to backpedal. Like that's the kind of thing that Harold Landry inspires and tackles. And, and then he gets three steps ahead of everyone, including the tackle and then bends around the edge at a completely flat angle, gets on his Ducati, makes a hard left and is able to get to the quarterback and flattens him just as much as he flattens the angle to him. 
So overall, when you're thinking about his athletic ability, it absolutely shows on tape. And his ability to dip his shoulder, get low, and get through to the quarterback is it's it's just special. I mean, what's kind of crazy is that I think there are some snaps where it, where it looks like as he's turning the corner and kind of getting flat to the quarterback, that he's somehow able to actually accelerate, like pick up speed as that's happening to kind of close in the quarterback. Um, yeah, I think the the ability to do that is is really special with him right now. Now, on a, from a limitation standpoint. You know, one of the things that you consistently see with pass rushers is they need to develop secondary moves, right? They need to be able to develop counters. Um, he's in that same boat. He definitely relies very, very heavily on this speed rush, which, again, is very good. And in college, when you have something that's that good and, and that kind of elite thing that you can do that college tackles can't really handle, you do that thing over and over because they can't stop it, right? So it's sort of a natural thing for most guys coming in the league to be able to get a little bit more refined with their hand usage, develop some some counters that they can kind of rely on because you will have some tackles at the NFL level that can get out there and cut off you know that burst around the edge and are going to be able to handle that a little bit better than what he faced in college. So stuff to work on there. But ultimately, you know, kind of one of the things that PFF has found with with pass rushing in general is it's less about how you lose and more just how often can you win, right? You look at, again, those percentages um, for how often you're, you're expecting elite players to get after the quarterback and bother them. We're talking about a handful of times a game. So if a quarterback's dropping back, right, 40 times in a game, can he get you four or five plays where he wins and beats that tackle and, and makes an impact? And I think he's shown the ability to do that more consistently. His play in 2016, I think, was better than any other edge rusher in this class. Now, I, I notice, and the astute listeners at home, in the car, where, on the toilet, wherever they may be listening, if you're listening to us on the toilet right now, just tweet at me, just because. Just tweet me a poop, a poop emoji, just because this is going to be a hilarious experiment. Uh, but you keep mentioning 2016, and I find this curious, because 2017, you mentioned it earlier, was not nearly as good as 2016. So I think the core question for Harold Landry is, are we overvaluing his 2016 performance and ignoring potentially troubling signs in 2017. I think there's some risk, yeah. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that we kind of talked about in the primer a little bit, where there are kind of question. There's there's some level of of uh, meaningful question marks with each of these players that are at the top, right? There there aren't guys that just come in and like, yeah, I have. There, there's no Miles Garrett type prospect, right? Yeah, I was gonna say if he if he would have exhibited in 2017 when he did in 2016, he'd be going first overall. Maybe, Maybe with the quarterback. He'd be the first non-quarterback select. Correct. Like 100%. Um, so I think he has what seems to be a very plausible excuse for that dip in production, which he battled ankle injuries all last year, and it was something that that was very noticeable in the way that he moved. And I think this is an area where the combine and coming in and testing well makes a difference in the evaluation, right? So say... You saw what you what you did great things in 2016, had the same dip in production last season, and then got to the combine and didn't test very well, right? Was kind of an average, below average athlete. Then I think you're like, oh, okay, maybe this was just kind of a fluke one-year thing. I, I'm not feeling very comfortable about this. I, I thought I saw some elite athletic ability in 2016, but obviously my eyes were playing tricks on me, right? That's not what happened. It was, okay, we know that he dealt with ankle injuries last year. 
I mean, there were some games where he, he didn't play as many snaps last year because there were a lot of games where he was only coming in. They were trying to save him for pass rush situations. And so he would just come in, try to give it what he had in, in those third down situations and then trot back off to the sideline because he couldn't play, play in and play out. And then so for him to come back and say, OK, now I'm healthy. I've had time to rest that ankle. And then I test very, very well athletically and, and match what I saw on the tape in 2016. I think that makes you feel more confident. But th- totally, there's a risk. And, and I think that's one thing that that we learned and that I took away from Scouting Academy is in, in the scouting reports that we had to put together, we had an area for injuries because injuries are part of the context that you put in the eval for the player. And it doesn't mean that it explains away things, but it does mean that you take that into account because it does affect how that player performs. And you need to know whether or not they have an injury when you're properly evaluating and putting everything that you're seeing in context. And I think that's the case here for Hill Landry is the, the context and the performance of 2017. You can't you can't talk about his performance in 2017 without talking about his injury. And, and I think that specific injury, too, is a problem for what he does best. For right? someone like who bends around the that edge. flexibility in your ankles to be able to corner like that is is very, very important. And so when suddenly you got a bad wheel there and you can't do those same things, you're just not the same player. Your your greatest strength is kind of gone. All right. So many we, we had the, uh, the NIT tourney, apparently. Uh, and the, in the NIT, we had Derwin James that came out at the top of that tournament. Now we pair them against Edge. And if you've been paying attention, we clearly prefer Harold Landry over over Chubb. And it, it, irrespective of what Lewis Riddick says, because uh, Lewis Riddick would apparently take Chubb over Miles Garrett, which is ridiculous. Love Lewis Riddick, but can't get on board with that take. Yeah, uh, I, I feel more and more every now and again like we may have dodged the bullet <laughs> with not ending up with Lewis Riddick as our GM. But you've got now you've got Derwin James versus Harold Landry in the finals of the premium position tournament, which one do you take? I'm going to go with Landry. Um, and I, and I think it comes down to, and again, I love Derwin James. I think he's a very good player. I think he's going to go wherever and just tear shit up. Um, but I think adding an edge player like Harold Landry makes a bigger difference for the 49ers defense. It improves them to a greater degree than somebody like Derwin James right now, just because again, even though they're not, even though Derwin may be a, an improvement over some of the players that they have at the, that position and, and that do those type, those type of things, they have no one that can do what Harold Landry does. They have no one that can come off the edge consistently and be able to win with speed and be able to take a little bit of pressure off some of the guys that you have in the interior. And suddenly you add him to the mix and you're getting, you know, a little bit of attention away from somebody like DeForest Buckner and somebody like Solomon Thomas, who now can play more on the inside in pass rushing situations that that seems like a better fit for him. I just think that does more for your defense than taking a defensive back at this stage. And for me, I, I think of just the combination of players that the Niners are amassing on the defensive line. We already know that DeForest Buckner is elite along the interior. I think that Someone like Solomon Thomas is going to be a very, very good player, and he is also going to rush from the inside. I think Eric Armstead's also a player that can rush from the, the outside position. And now we're looking at a nickel line of Armstead, Thomas, Buckner, and someone else. And when I think of that weak side, and I think of just, we need speed. We need someone who can bend around the edge. I mean, hell, we had an old dude coming off two Achilles injuries last year that was able to, in spot play, Right, Elvis Dumerville, in case you're not tracking. Uh, Elvis Dumerville was able to come in and spot play and put up some pretty decent numbers. 
And and it's and he's a guy who was able to do it. And I think if you put a really, really true speed guy on the end of that line, you begin to create some problems for teams in a way that the Niners just don't have the ability to do right now because they don't have that speed rusher on their roster. I think that Landry offers a skill set that the Niners are lusting after and that the Niners could really exploit. Definitely. Yeah, I think you get players into more natural positions by adding him, right? So no longer... You can you can get somewhat of a rotation going on. And we talked about how you want to have a defensive line that can go six, seven players deep, right? And and keep guys fresh. And we don't have to have DeForest Buckner playing 90% of the snaps anymore. Like having him, Thomas Armstead, be able to rotate those snaps on the interior and kind of all stay fresh and, and be able to give full effort when they're out there for every snap that they're out there. Uh, I think that's just a, a big thing for the defense. And again, Yes, they could use some improvement, um, you know, in the secondary as well. I wouldn't mind seeing them take another secondary player or two in this draft. But if it comes down to both of those players being available in the specific context of this 49ers team, I think Harold Landry has the potential to have a bigger impact. So two quick notes, one or not one quick note, one other question. One, why don't we why didn't we cover Davenport in this episode? Um, I think Davenport for me kind of fits into the Roquan Edmonds kind of thing. It's like, why would you go after the potential of Davenport when you can just have the player you hope Davenport to be? And that's Harold Landry. And and that Agreed. to me is, is is the same difference between Roquan and, uh, and Edmonds, which is like, why would you pick the guy who might be it, Roquan Smith, when you can just have Roquan Smith? Yeah. But while we're talking about Roquan Smith, of course, last week, we talked about non-premium positions. And we said, we of the non-premium position players, we would pick Roquan. Now, now we're in the ultimate tournament. <laughs> let's do it. I like I like tournaments. Apparently, uh, let's go ahead and put Roquan versus Landry. The you know we we loved Roquan. We thought it would be a great pairing with 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 Foster. And equally, we love Landry and think he would really complete the collection of players that we've amassed so far on the defensive line. Of those two players, even considering that we loved Roquan Smith's performance in the passing game, where which player would you pick? If both were available, Landry or Smith, uh, definitely Landry. I think um, I tried to tee it up like it was going to be a more difficult decision, but yeah, it, really- <laughs> it, it really wasn't. Um, I think the the more interesting part of it is is where does Rokon fit with these other players, right? And I think he's probably third or fourth. Like I, I think to me, my clear top two um, on, on the wish list for number nine is Harold Landry and then Derwin James. Um, I think after that, you start to get things muddied a little bit more. Where I think. Roquan's definitely in that conversation, but so is Minka, so is Denzel Ward. Like I think they're all kind of yeah. right there. Um, I wouldn't have a strong preference towards you know any one of those three. Yeah, as shitty as it sounds, because of all of the stuff that's happened with Ruben Foster, um, I I that to me takes Roquan up a little bit. I sure. still think for me the top two are, are absolutely right. I think it's Landry and and Derwin, but I think just the realities of off field NFL life for people that like to smoke weed and hang out in Alabama. It just, it's, you know, I, I just, I think about the future. That's all, man. That's yeah, all it is. Again, it certainly wouldn't be angry, you know, if, if Roquan ended up being the, the selection, you would understand it. Um, I mean, I'd maybe be a little bit angry if, if both Derwin and Harold Landry were available yeah. and they decided to go Roquan. Um, but I mean, there's certainly a chance that those players aren't available, right? Like a lot of crazy shit happens on draft day. Um, it's very difficult to predict who's going to be available once you get, you know, past the first few selections essentially 
um, that seem to kind of get solidified by the time draft night rolls around. So uh, yeah, I think those that's the wish list. So I think it's, it's going to be defense if they stay at nine. I think I'd be very surprised if there's an offensive player uh, selected there. Um, I think it's yeah, defense or uh, trade back if they have the opportunity to. And that's where we're kind of at, I guess with the, the top of the draft. So that does it for our premium and non-premium position kind of evals at the nine at the ninth overall pick. We've got a few more draft episodes left. Next up, we've got day two and later options on offense. And then we've got day two and later options on defense. Those are going to be our next two shows that we'll post on the following Wednesdays. And then we're going to have a wrap up and kind of overall plan because we're we're going through all these player evals and we're watching this film as we go. So we're taking you on this draft journey as we go on it as well because we don't have really our minds made up one way or the other before we put the work in to get these episodes together. So if you like what you've heard, definitely leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And, you know, you could just also just tell someone about it. If you've got a friend who's a Niner fan and they're not a podcast listener, just say like, hey, download this, listen to it, put it in your ear holes. It's great. Trust me. Uh, and, and if not, just hand him a beer and say, I'm sorry. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? Uh, it's going to be at Newman NFL. So thanks again for tuning in this week. And as always, go Niners. Hey, everybody, it's Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. So you listen to podcasts, check it out.